So we're going to start in the book of Amos. Amos, however you want to say it. I, I say it different probably every time. But uh, the book of Amos, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4. And it's interesting, it's going to provide a little bit of a, of a bridge from what we were talking about last week. And I don't know if anybody missed it, but last week we were focusing on the idea that we are called to give spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And so we were, we were talking about the Old Testament sacrifices and how they had to come and give before the Lord and, the, and that the men of faith were, it was a joyful thing to take what they had and to offer it to God, to have it killed on the altar and, and for whatever, a peace offering, a free will offering, whatever it was. And we were looking at how that kind of translate into this New Testament idea that all of who we are is supposed to be offered up continuously as a living sacrifice. But we also spoke about how sometimes it's easy to go through very Christian, very religious motions, worship, tithe, and as far as our hearts are concerned, there's really no offering or, or sacrifice going on. It's just another work of our you know, of, of our culture, or of our life, or it's what we do. And it's interesting, before we get into the main topic tonight, that right here in chapter 4, verse 4, God speaks against this very thing. And he says, come to Bethel and transgress. That doesn't sound good. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithe every three days, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Now this is God speaking to his people in the midst of judgment and proclaiming the judgment that is going to come upon them in all the various ways. And it's interesting, he, he says, come and transgress. No, even, even multiply your transgressions, because his judgment is about to be poured out. And, but when he speaks about their transgression, when he speaks about their sin, he says, come and make your sacrifices. Because even though you sacrifice on the altar and you tithe every three days, you give your your praise of thanksgiving with leaven. And we see that God's desire is first and foremost for our heart. And that if we think we can, we can walk through a, you know, a very Christian look-alike lifestyle and we can do these things and we can offer to God and we can do good works, yet we are not willing to pull the leaven from out of the body, the, the sin from out of our hearts, the plank from out of our eye. God says he's not pleased with such an offering. And so that is just a very powerful, coming from the, from the Lord himself, picture um, of where we can slip and fall um, into sacrifices or into good works when really we're missing the mark. And 
So it also provides a bridge, I think, for what we're going to talk about this week. So let me ask you something. Who causes calamity on the earth? What was that? Satan? Calamity. Destruction, disaster, chaos. God does. God speaks of himself and says, I cause calamity upon the earth. And it's God's hand that brings about the whirlwinds and the tornadoes. It's God's hand that allows or defends the invasions against Israel. It's God's hand that is over all things and that is restrained over all things. And even Job, as Satan came against him, you know who even you know who proposed the idea to Satan that he should maybe go have a look at Job? God did. You know who allowed Satan to touch Job? God did. You know who also told Satan, you cannot touch him more than this? God did. God opened the doors and he set the boundaries. He allowed the destruction, but if you read the end of Job, he also already had in mind the purpose for the test. And he already had in mind the fact that Job was going to receive twice as much as he ever had before. And that the blessing and the righteousness of Job increased on the other side of his testing. Not only that, but the witness of who God is and how he works was magnified in many ways, not only to the people, but to us now, thousands of years later. They get to read it and we get to see God's character. And there are things that you find out and that you see clearly about God in the book of Job that you don't get anywhere else. I mean, not, maybe not just as picturesque as it's put there. Let me, let me say it that way. And so is God good? Absolutely, God is good. God is good. And for some people, this is a hard thing. Well, how can you say God is good if, you know, he allows people to die and he allows tornadoes and, and you say that God says he's the one that brings calamity? But God is good. And God is just. God is wrathful and angry. Yet he's merciful and kind. And God works all things together together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is without exception. But God uses the things in our life and he uses even the works of Satan for good. For good. Sometimes he allows us to bring things upon ourselves when he offered a way out. And sometimes he allows things like the Apostle Paul, who was doing a pretty good job at being a Christian, in my opinion, to be thrown into prison 
because it was under house arrest that he wrote most of the New Testament, which now serves the entire world so they can know and operate in and through Christ. God used that. If he wouldn't have been put in house arrest, if he wouldn't have put in prison, he might not have ever sat down and had time to write all that. So as you're grappling with this in your mind, I want to read to you Amos 4, 6 through 13. And so he's talking to, well, he's talking to Samaria here. He's talking to his people, and he's talking to a people in the middle of judgment, in the middle of chaos, and these things he's going to bring about them. And so he's talking a, a little bit about what's going on here, right? And uh, this, is a, this is a rebellious and wicked people, though he's been good and faithful to them. And he says this, in verse 6, he says, Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That means there wasn't anything to eat. And lack of bread in all of your places. Well, that doesn't sound good. Why would God do that? Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Absolutely. In verse 7, he said, I also withheld rain from you. When there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city, and I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. You know what happened? The locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your caps come up to your, into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel." For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Isn't that not terrifying? Should we not, as God's people, as the finite creation that we are, as men and women formed from dust, fear the living God? Should we not? Does the Bible not say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and understanding? Do you think that's not God's purpose? For behold, he who forms mountains and creates winds, who declares man what his thoughts is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high place of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. It should at the very least be sobering. Sobering. And so here's what I bring to you tonight. 
I bring to you a God whose purpose for your life is not your comfort, for your wealth, for your kingdom, or for your glory. Now, will God give comfort and wealth and kingdom and glory? Sure. It's his to give and his to take. But his purpose is not for that. And very often, we look at all the bad things in the world and we look at things happening in our own life and we just say, oh, well, Satan's against us and the enemy is against us. And you know what? I'm also not arguing that because most of the time that's true. But you know what Jesus tells Pilate? You would have no power over me unless my Father in heaven had given it to you. And so in the middle of my test, if Satan is coming against me and is trying to ruin my life, that may very well be true. But you know what is also true? He would have no power over me if my Heavenly Father had not given it to him. And also his power ends exactly where my Heavenly Father says it ends. And the power I have to walk against that is exactly what my Heavenly Father says it is. But we forget that it is God who causes calamity. We forget that God is is an awesome and terrible God. And that the awe we have in in Him is widespread. God's desire for us is to understand the fullness of His character, His judgment, His anger, His wrath, His mercy, His kindness, His goodness, His faithfulness, right? All the way from one end to the other. And He prepares vessels for destruction, and He prepares objects of affection for Himself so that we can see that. So where am I going with this? Let me... Let me ask you something. Anybody here familiar with the story of David? And I don't mean David and Goliath. I mean the whole story of David. A couple people, okay. So David, at, at, at this point in his kingdom, where he has subdued you know, the nations and he's got his throne after running from King Saul in the wilderness and everything is great, right? He's the most renowned man of Israel, he is, he is the king that to this day the Jews look back to, right? And in the midst of this, he sins. He commits adultery. He murders a woman's husband, right? God takes away his child. Huh? He, yeah. God takes away his child. And then slowly and surely, he begins to lose grasp of this perfect picture and plan that was before him, the kingdom and all these things. His son, Absalom, actually raises up against him and conspires against him. And David has to take his personal guard and flee his own kingdom. Or what he thought was his kingdom, right? The kingdom God gave him. And he has to flee. And as he's sneaking out the back way, so he's not killed. You know what happens? There's a man named Shimei. And as Shimei sees David leaving, he begins to throw rocks at David and to curse David. And one of David's guards sees and hears this and he says, oh, David, let me just, I will draw my sword. I will cut his head off right now. 
I will kill him. And it's really interesting. You know what David says? And this is a paraphrase. I probably should have had this ready. David says, no. For the Lord has allowed this and has prepared him for this time. He saw that even Shimei's mocking him was the Lord allowing this to come upon him for whatever reason. And at least in that moment, he was not willing to let his servant go kill him. And he left. And he left. And so, for me, I've been, I've been considering all these things that have been happening in my life, in your life, in, in the atmosphere of the church. Me and Abigail were talking you know, the other day that, you know, the first couple of years of Blueprint was, it was like a, it was like a Jesus fairy tale seemed like, right? And there's just been a lot of uh, uh, issues and personal, you know, concerns and, and, and um, hurt and heartache and chaos and all these things. And I've been looking even at my own personal life and, and uh, going through a time of testing right now. And if, if, if you feel like you're going through a time of testing or struggle right now, just raise your hand. Just anybody willing to be honest there? Okay, so a time of testing or struggle. Okay, there we go. So 100% of the people in this room. And I begin to think about the situation as, for me anyways, it looks like it's, you know, progressively getting a little worse and thinking to myself, well, Lord, you know, I'm, um, I'm, still, I'm still praying. I still believe you're going to deliver me, not losing faith in that, not losing hope in that, and I'm still just trusting and waiting on you. But then as I begin to read this, and I begin to see these things, God says, I gave you lack of bread. And what was his purpose? For his people to turn back to him. For some of them to enter into a real devotion with God for the first time. He withheld rain. And you know what they did? Instead of crying out to God, they actually ran over to Rain Was and said, well, we can go get it here. You know, oh, look, it's over there. If we, if we move and if we go over here and, oh, if we go over here, we can get it. And he says, you went to the cities that did have rain and still you weren't satisfied. You moved in your own strength. You went where you thought it was good and you were not satisfied. And still you did not turn to me. He goes on, he says, I blasted you with blight and mildew. And as everything looked like it was good, as your gardens increased, your vineyards and your fig trees, okay, finally something is going right. The locusts devoured them. He says, you still did not turn to me. And all through these things, as God is revealing these issues to his people, and as God is allowing and even causing calamity to come upon them, he had a purpose. It was not really to destroy them. God's promise and God's faithfulness was with the people Israel. It was not to bring about devastation. It was to turn their hearts back to him so that righteousness could fill the place that was called by his name, so that justice could return to his people, and so that the hearts of the men and women would be pure before the Lord. That was his desire. And as I was thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm praying and I'm believing God, I, I, I read this and I began to ask myself, okay, but in my prayer, am I really crying out? 
Because I believe God, I trust God. But I wondered, you know what, is God asking more of me? Does he want more of me? Is he trying to draw me into a place of, of greater desperation where I can actually see more of him? Is he trying to get me past, oh yeah, God will fix it, and I can kind of go on with my own concerns and let my, my mind think about whatever I want, and, you know, not really be worried, or is he really trying to get me in a place where I can shed off even the small little things of my life that he's trying to weed out? As I say, oh yes, I am trusting God. Is my level of faith really where he wants it to be? Or o- over times of comfort and of, you know, really a lack of, a lack of need. Not, a la- not, not lacking, but lacking, lacking. Of being pretty well off. Have I forgotten what it means to fully trust in the Lord? And is this a time where the Lord is putting my faith and my own words to the test? And so I begin to consider this, and I begin to see the heart of God for his people. Because, you know, testing is something that God gives us and allows for us, allows for us to go through. But it's also something that he designed for us to overcome. It's something that he's allowed in our lives to sharpen us, to mold us, to strengthen us, not in our own strength, but actually in our humility Not in our own strength, but in our weakness. Not in our raising ourselves up and finding a way, but lowering ourselves down and and saying, Lord, I surrender. And it may be hard to, to think about that when we read in that chapter, but as we turn to James 1, this is such an amazing promise. I've it's really, God worked in a pretty amazing lo- way in my life because of this verse, and of course it's, it's pretty memorable, and um, so it's stuck with me. But it definitely suits the occasion. And in James chapter 1, James writes to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he says this, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Well, that sounds silly. When you fall into trials, when you are being tested, when your faith is feeling weak, when you realize, whoa, things aren't looking as good as I thought they were, James says, count it as joy. And my question is always the same. Why on earth would I do that? I mean, um, I've done some, some dumb things, but I'm not stupid. Why would, I, why would I have any reason to look at something bad and say it's good and joyful? This is James 1, verse 2. And he goes on and says, Knowing, knowing, understanding, remembering that the testing of your faith actually is to produce something. Just as in, in uh, Amos, God was allowing these things happen to, re- to produce a repentant heart to produce a body that was going to be clean and, and wholesome before him. 
And here he says that this testing that you're going through, these trials that you're going to, the command is to, have, is to seek and to have joy. Because God is trying to produce in you a patience. And not just patience as you might understand it, but a patience that's going to produce something even greater. It's actually a seed. It says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Many times we're allowed to go into trials and we're allowed to fall and we're allowed to see ourselves as bitter and wicked as we are for a moment to, because beforehand we thought we lacked nothing. God says, you don't even know how lacking you really are. But in other cases, well, let me just ask it like this. In your situation right now, in your trial right now, how many of you feel real complete? How many of you feel like there's maybe a couple of, a couple of pegs missing from your life? Right. Me too. How many of you can say right now, and I don't mean the spiritual great answer, yes, we're all whole in Jesus, and if we I die, we go into heaven, I got it, right? I mean, physically speaking, right now, you lack nothing. Maybe some of you can, but I know for a fact, many of you can't. But you know what God's promise, if this word is true, you know what his promise is? That on the other side of your trials, when you're in a place where you're incomplete and you're lacking, that on the other side of your trials, this patience he's working in you is going to produce a life and, and, and a fulfillment before God where you will, whatever is missing will be perfected. And whatever now is lacking, as soon as we endure and we see the goodness of God spring forth, those things that are lacking in your life, in your finances, in your marriage, in your relationship, in your work, in your joy, in your peace, whatever they are, God is going to fulfill that and he's going to complete that and if we believe that if we believe God we can have joy now if you plan to be like the Israelites and even though he's sending you trials you're still not going to turn to him I would not recommend to have joy in your trials I would recommend to expect another outpouring of God's discipline Because God wants our hearts not in a comfortable place, not where we want them, but where he wants them, in a place of surrender, where we see ourselves clearly as we are. And so we can have an expectation that God is good. But what do we do in that moment? Because like I said, for me, I'm praying and I'm waiting and I'm being faithful, right? I'm like, okay, Lord, I know you're going to get me through this. I know God's, what God's promise is. But is that really the condition that God wants my heart in? I want to turn to one more passage, and this is in Daniel 9. So I'll give you all a second to turn there, which is also giving me a second to turn there. And so in Daniel 9, this is what happens. Darius takes over, right? And Daniel's so blessed from the Lord that when Darius takes over, they just 
immediately, immediately you keep him as a, as a wise man. He's doing pretty good, right? But in this time, Daniel sees from the book of Jeremiah, and he understands and he remembers that God, when he sent, when God sent his people into exile because they had turned their hearts away from him, God promised that they would be there for 70 years and that he would bring them back to their home. 70 years is a long time. Some of those people didn't live to see it. And this is where we get the verse when, in Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans for a hope and a future and all these good things. God was saying that in the midst of, oh, but I'm sending you to exile for 70 years. It's a little different when you hear it in that context. And so uh, Daniel sees, hey, the 70 years is coming to an end. Hey, God said he's going to restore us. Hey, God is going to bring us back to our place. This trial, this temptation, you know, these these, uh, tribulations are going to be over. Daniel believes God. He's a man of faith. Do you know what he does? It says in verse 3, then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the peoples of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. And he goes on, and he begins to pray, and he continues crying out. And is this a man who doesn't trust God's promise? Is this a man who's concerned with whether or not the Lord will fulfill his own prophecy? No. But knowing that there's an outcome that's joyful, knowing that God is going to bring about restoration and that God is going to, to put an end to this trial. We, we know that we can trust God. Daniel still sets his face to the Lord and sackcloth and ashes and fasting and prayer. And he rejoices and he declares to God, Lord, I know you're faithful. I know you keep your covenant. But Lord, I also know, he says we, he does not negate himself. He says we have sinned against you. We have been faithless. We have not fulfilled your precepts. And there's a place for all of us to see ourselves clearly and to pray prayers like that and to be reminded that God is not good to us because we have it together. In fact, however together you think you have it, you're probably pretty far off. God is good to us because God is good and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's merciful. 
but he wants a heart in us that sees that, right? That understands that, that knows God's power and his provision. That sees, that does not forget, let me say this, does not forget the weight and the value of the salvation that he gave us. Because your salvation might have been free, but it was not free. It was paid for at a cost. And so as we, as a church, and as we individually are going through trials and struggles, and even as we as a church believe that God is going to move us through and that God is going to provide, I believe that. This is not, I believe that. That has not changed. Are we seeing that God is the God who causes calamity? And maybe he has allowed us to go through this trial so we would turn back to him? where we would stop being selfish, where we would stop being lazy in our spiritual life, and we would stop being comfortable with saying, hey, I'm good enough, and actually say, you know what, I have a long way to go because we serve an infinite God. Are we in a place where really we need to be mourning? But we're just not willing to mourn? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's, let's even take a step back. You know what the first beatitude? Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As long as we think we have anything in ourselves, we're missing the very first beatitude. We haven't even got past that. God is good and faithful to his covenants. God is, God is faithful to remember us, and he's quick to fulfill his promise. And if you lack joy in the, midst of, in the midst of these times, James is reminding us, no, even in the trials, yes, it's hard. No, you're supposed to find joy. You're supposed to have joy. And today, as I was considering myself, and I was kind of, I wasn't, you know, I just kind of was in a, in, a, in a moody mood. I don't even know what to call it, right? And I was like, man, I feel kind of, this feels kind of negative. And that word just came to me, joy. And I was like, oh, Lord, what am I doing? Where is my joy? What am I going to do, walk around and whine all day? Where is my joy? Because there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to be joyful. As, as Daniel cried out to the Lord, he said, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we're sinful, but Lord, I know. I know you're faithful. And it sounds backwards, but there's a place in there where we can, we can cry out to the Lord and we can let our hearts, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable. You know, it's okay to be broken. You know, it's okay to look at a situation in your life and say, you know what? This really isn't good. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to pretend like everything is good. It's okay. Because it's in those things where we can take that brokenness and we can take our mourning and we can take our struggles before the Lord. And in fact, he's expecting us to take it in that state. Because his power is made perfect in our what? In our weakness. And then as we pour out and as we cry out and as we lift those things up, then truly we can be filled with joy knowing that God hears us and that we have peace with him and that he has a plan to grow us 
and to shape us on the other side of it if we're willing to cooperate with the plan. So let's just pray. And I don't know if maybe you're on a side where you need to mourn a little bit, or maybe you're on the side where you've been mourning already and you need to have joy. But either way, I, I believe that most of us, if not all of us, are in a place where God wants us closer. And we have not been faithful to put ourselves closer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, and we just lift ourselves up to you now, Lord, and we just pray that you would forgive us, Father God, because, Lord, as your body, we have not been faithful in all of your ways. Lord, you've spoken to us, and we have not always listened. Lord, you have commanded us from your word, and we have not followed. Your, Lord, you have shown us your goodness and your mercy, and we have not sought it out diligently. Lord, you have told us to take up our cross and to forsake all, and we've clung to the world and those things which we can grasp here. And Lord, we could go on and on, but there are things that even we're not aware of. And so we pray that you'd forgive us, Lord, that you would be merciful, that you would be faithful, Lord, even in the place where maybe we have not been. Lord, we pray that you would see our weakness, and that you would see our hearts, you would see our spirits. And Lord, let us be poor in spirit before you. Let us humble ourselves so you don't have to do the humbling, Lord, because that hurts. And Father God, we also pray that in the midst of these times, Lord, that you would remind us that even now we can, Lord, we can trust you, and we do trust you, but let us continue to follow you. Let our trust and our joy produce more steadfastness. Let it produce more good works. Let it produce a greater love and appreciation for who you are. So Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you're with us and we can trust you, Lord, that you are working all things together for the good, that there is an outcome. But Lord, let us not look at our trials as, oh, it's just another fastball from Satan and, you know, nothing to see here, but let us consider that maybe, Lord, you've allowed these things to happen for our own benefit. And so we thank you. We ask that you would just show us how to walk with you. You would forgive us of our sins. And I thank you that we are forgiven because you live, Lord Jesus. Amen.